It still is always the fact, isn't it, that we can be so thankful that God has given us voices. And with those, we can sing and we can lift up the heartfelt expressions of our being to praise and to laud the name of God. And certainly as we do that from time to time when we gather in song, it's always a spirited time. It's always an encouraging time. It sets us on our course, especially on the first day of the week, for a week of service unto our God in heaven. As is the case, of course, we're assembled this evening and look forward, as always, to the ability to worship as God has allowed us to do. And for the next few moments, we'll also give some thought to a section of the Word of God, drawn from that reading from just a moment ago in the 38th chapter of the book of Isaiah. If you would, please be turning there as we reflect upon some of the matters to be found. We'll, fact without, we'll find without doubt that those issues and those matters perhaps can well start us on a course of study that might begin with the following slide. As we have read this past week from that section of Isaiah, including chapter 38, we found ourselves in the midst of a set of chapters and a set of discussions, many of which were directly related to future prophecies of Christ, the nature of His kingdom, the power attached to and associated with, the nature of the greatness of that which would be the church. But in the midst of all of that, we find an episode concerning a sick man, in fact, a sick king. And tonight, I'd invite you to think with me for the next few moments about none other than an illness that happened as an episode in the life of Hezekiah. As we read that and reflect upon it, we'll find, as is seemingly always the case, issues and applications that really have a great bearing on your faithfulness and mine even today. You'll notice some of the comments at the bottom of that slide remind us of matters like these. We always find ourselves as we study the Old Testament, it seems, talking about, reading about, studying about individuals that lived so long ago in a culture that was so different than ours, in a land, in a distant, in a particular place and time that seems so remote compared to ours, and yet... As we reflect upon them, be they Adam and Eve in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, or whether they be Malachi in the closing two chapters of that book, we seemingly always find direct usefulness, and that's, of course, the work of God as He presented the Old Testament. It'll be no different as we come to Hezekiah tonight. In fact, you'll notice some of the bottom statements on that slide. There could be much said about the life of Hezekiah, and obviously our discussion will be a bit limited but might I suggest we start like this. What is it that we do find in the text per se? We never wish to deviate from what the Holy Spirit has informed us, and so as we look at those opening several verses of Isaiah 38, we come face to face with a man named Hezekiah. Here are some facts that might be well to keep in mind. Hezekiah was the 13th king of Judah. He, in fact, followed a lengthy line, some of which had been better than others, admittedly. And it would be fair to say that those immediately preceding him were rascals indeed. In fact, he himself was the son of Ahaz, and Ahaz is not the most encouraging Old Testament figure, is he? In fact, many mistakes cloud his life, and in fact, influentially, he did very little positive in relationship to the service of the God of heaven. But might we say that this man, Hezekiah, who came to the throne after him, Hezekiah reigned 29 years over the kingdom of Judah. He started that reign, as you can tell, in 727 B.C. and he ended it in 698 B.C. at the time of his death. 
as you and I observe that period of time of the reign of Hezekiah, you might immediately notice that there were two prophets active and alive during the period of that time. One of them was none other than Isaiah, one of the most notable of the major prophets. But another was Micah, one of the most notable of the minor prophets. Both were contemporary during the time of Hezekiah. It might be fair to say, even beyond that, we notice the worldwide kingdom, or at least the strong kingdom that was such a thorn in Judah's side, was none other than Assyria. This was the golden age of Assyria. She was mighty, she was strong, she was in fact ferocious in many ways. And of course, she was not that distant from the actual empire of both Israel and Judah. You might notice, I've tried to comment very interestingly, that Assyria brought great problems for both Judah and Israel. You might in fact notice immediately that time frame in which Hezekiah again reigned, 727 to 698. I might draw to each of us an especial mention to the year 722 B.C., so six years into Hezekiah's reign. Assyria at that time in her might and her strength, she in fact attacked the northern kingdom of Israel and conquered it. Hauling off into captivity the northern kingdom of Israel and in fact... She was knocking on the door of Jerusalem. She was knocking on the door of Judah. And in fact, Hezekiah and his people were fearful that they were going to be victorious. There were many problems then that beset Hezekiah. How would he handle them? What would he do? And what would the people do? You may notice that much could be said complimentary of Hezekiah. If we revisit the 16th chapter of 2 Kings... We notice that the Scriptures say there was no king like Hezekiah before him or after him. He did that which was right in the sight of God. Amazing, isn't it? Surrounded by such influences that were negative, often prompted by family manners and others to pursue that which was evil and ungodly. And nonetheless, it was says of Hezekiah that what a noble example of goodness he was. It might be fair, in fact, to comment that he in fact did away with or at least destroyed much of the idolatrous worship places. He called the people to the worship of the God of heaven. That sounds so good, doesn't it? But then in the 15th year of his reign, things began to take a dramatic turn, at least for a short period of time. Hezekiah became sick. The text informs us that he became sick unto death. It was a terminal illness. We notice that this sickness, in fact, among other symptoms, apparently it was symptomized by a very sore boil that had raised up on the skin of, of, of the man Hezekiah. That boil and the other factors that related here to this condition that he had brought us to verse number 1. God commissioned Isaiah the prophet to come and deliver a message to Hezekiah, who of course was sick, and verse number 1 of Isaiah 38 says, And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amoz, came unto him and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Set thine house in order, for thou shalt die and not live. Think about receiving that kind of message. Here the prophet came. And obviously Hezekiah had a great deal of respect for Isaiah. And Isaiah came and delivered this stirring, stunning piece of news Get your business in order, Hezekiah. You're going to die. You're not going to live. You won't recover from this illness. 
that kind of news would be very disturbing. It would be very emotional, of course. It would be a very strong sentence. You may notice that upon hearing that news, verse number 2 says, Hezekiah turned his face toward the wall. He received the news and apparently his countenance fell, just like you and I might be very quick to expect. But then it says he prayed unto the Lord. He turned his attention to the God of heaven immediately in strong beseeching supplication. He did so in light of some of the statements. You'll notice verse number 3 goes on to say, This is what he prayed. And said, Remember now, O Lord, I beseech thee, how I have walked before thee in truth and with a perfect heart, and have done that which is good in thy sight. It doesn't seem as if we should immediately think Hezekiah is bragging. He's simply making a statement of what he had done in contrast to many of those earlier previous rulers that were evil and wicked. He, in fact, makes an observation of his intent, the thorough objective of his life and heart. And then verse number 3 ends by saying, And Hezekiah wept sore. Again, I believe that's easy to understand. Tears would stream down my face too, likely, just as it would many of us upon receiving news like this. You're going to die. You're not going to recover from this illness. You'll notice as we close that slide, notice that Isaiah left and departed after he had delivered this message to the man Hezekiah. You'll notice that following the reading that you and I just noted a moment ago, some more information is actually delivered. Amazingly enough, the God of heaven now responded. I would invite you to notice, beginning in verse number 4 of Isaiah 38, Then came the word of the Lord to Isaiah, saying, Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus saith the Lord, the God of David thy father, I have heard thy prayer, I have seen thy tears. God made observation immediately, and if we read the corresponding account in 2 Kings chapters 19 and 20, the Word there tells us that this message from God to Isaiah came just shortly after he had left his communication with Hezekiah. The Word came almost that quickly. God now says, Isaiah, go back and speak something else to Hezekiah. I've heard your prayer. I've seen your tears. And you'll notice I left one thing out of that verse. Verse number 5 closes with these words. Behold, I will add unto thy days... Fifteen years. And thus, you'll notice some of these comments. God, upon hearing that prayer, that petition, that supplication of Hezekiah, now affirmed, I've heard the prayer, and I'm going to add fifteen years to your life. Not only that, you'll notice in the verses that follow, God says, In addition, I'm going to deliver you from Assyria. Jerusalem will be spared, and Assyria will not, in fact, conquer this city right now. Amazingly enough, verse number 6 and 7 then says it like this, I will deliver thee and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city. And this shall be a sign unto thee from the Lord, that the Lord will do this thing that He hath spoken. The last comments on that slide then are these. In the midst of these promises that God had made through Isaiah to Hezekiah, God in fact in the record of Second Kings makes an offer. As a sign and as a declaration of these matters, Hezekiah, you ask one of two things and I'll give it. Do you want the sundial to go 10 degrees forward 
or to go 10 degrees backward. Hezekiah thought with himself in a moment and said, well, it's not that amazing for the sundial to go forward. So he requested that the sign be that the sundial, the shadow in the sundial, go backward 10 degrees. With that in mind, notice verse number 8. Behold, I will bring again the shadow of the degrees which has gone down in the sundial of Ahaz 10 degrees backward. So the sun returned 10 degrees by which degrees it was gone down. So you and I readily appreciate this was an extraordinarily unique event. The sun went back 10 degrees in its orbit, if you please, in relation to Earth's rotation. 10 degrees corresponds to 40 minutes. So the day on that occasion was 24 hours and 40 minutes long. Significantly longer, of course, than any average day throughout the nature since the creation of time. Remarkable what you and I appreciate that God did that day. With that, that slide closes. And we now are ready to revisit it and ask about its applications to you and to me. The illness of Hezekiah and what it was that happened. Let's develop it like this if we might. First of all, let's reflect just a moment on the person of Hezekiah. We highlighted that at the outset of the lesson, but it seems entirely appropriate to reflect on it somewhat more intently. I mentioned earlier that the twelfth king of Judah was none other than Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And as surely as we read with some intent in the 16th and 17th chapters of 2 Kings, we find a man who in fact was so wicked, namely Ahaz, that he in fact gave of his children that they would be given over sacrificially to the idols. Amazingly, here's at least one of the kings of Judah who gave his children to be sacrificed to an idol. Now clearly Hezekiah was spared, but of his other children, perhaps it was children due to concubines, or it was children due to other various and sundry means. But he amazingly enough, he was given to idolatry that deeply and that quickly. You'll notice furthermore that these comments... 2 Kings 18, in fact, tells us that among the kings of Judah, the wickedness, surely, according to Ahaz, makes him one of the worst kings that she ever suffered through. He was a real rascal in so many ways. When you and I think about the nature of a king like that, remember, he was leading God's people. He had been elevated to that stature because he took the throne after his own father died. Maybe in light of all those comments, it comes to this point then to thinking about Hezekiah. His dad was one of the sorriest kings that Judah ever had. He himself was one of the best kings that Judah ever had. That's a tremendous difference, isn't it? That is a monumental, or in fact a colossal statement. Notice that Hezekiah then by virtue of his character and his concourse in life, he made his own decisions he didn't follow the evil and the wickedness that his dad had done. He didn't follow the evil he'd seen so often recognized in his father's activities. That highlights us often, doesn't it, about the individual nature of our service. How often does the Bible inform us? So then every one of us shall give account of himself unto God. A particular person's family may not be the most noble of families, but it does not mean that you or I as members of that family have to succumb to that kind of low living. It doesn't mean that we have to be given to that kind of evil activity. 
You and I can rise above it. We can, in fact, soar over it in the language of Isaiah 40, verse 31. Amazingly, when you and I consider the other individual characteristics of the Bible, I've asked you to think about the clear declaration of choice left with each of us. Wasn't it Joshua who, with the power and majesty of his day, said, Choose you this day whom you'll serve. But then he concluded that verse by saying, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And that kind of statement still rings with such amazing confidence, doesn't it? You may have noted again, We will serve the Lord. In the verses just preceding that when Joshua had already spoken about the fact that it would not be very long before this very people of whom he'd spoken, they would in fact turn from God, they would be given to idolatrous activity, they would follow the nations that were around them. In the midst of that, he said, we, my family and me, will serve the Lord. I know each of us pray and long so often for a confidence and a straightforward path for our family that we, in fact, will be faithful in every way, always an example of goodness and faithfulness. You'll notice here we must applaud Hezekiah for this. How often, perhaps, would his father have encouraged him to do the wrong thing, and yet, as king, he did what was right. How often did other members of his family remember his grandfather wasn't very noteworthy either, and yet here he rose to such good prominence. Maybe some other verses would be these. In Matthew 25, verses 14 and following, that famous presentation of the man with the talents. There was one that had been given five talents, one two talents, one only one talent, and at the time of their reckoning, each one was reckoned individually. The five-talent man, he was commended because, in fact, he utilized what he had and, of course, gained five additional the two-talent man had utilized what he had and gained two additional. But the one-talent man did not use what he had, and he alone was judged for that. His failure didn't reflect upon the five-talent or the two-talent man. You and I each have been blessed with such talents, abilities, and capabilities. May we, like Hezekiah, not allow others to deter us to use them in improper fashions and ways, but rather to use them in the way that we should. The person Hezekiah, what else might we say? What about the hard times that in fact did come upon him? Think of it with me again like this, though we hinted at it earlier. Here was a man, remember he was 15 years into his reign by the time this illness developed. For 15 years he had done what was right. For 15 years he, in distinction to his father, had led God's people as they ought to have been going. Fifteen years in, now he gets sick. A king unlike any they had had before. One might have thought that God would want him to stay active and alive and well and lead them for decades to come. It wasn't to be. A sentence of death. Set thine house in order, Hezekiah, for thou shalt die and not live. Those kind of words aren't any easier today than surely they were for Hezekiah. No wonder then you and I should appreciate, isn't it true still, of Christians? 
We look about us and see a world that seems so often overwhelmed in evil and ungodliness, a world that is engulfed in iniquity, a world that seems treading happily the path of the devil. And there seem so few sometimes that are faithful, so few with whom God would be well pleased, so few in number. The Lord, of course, reminded us that few there be that find it, Matthew 7, 14. But maybe among other things, this continues to speak volumes about you and I, Christians. Hard times come our way as well. You and I might visit a doctor and receive the news. You know what you have? As much as I don't like to share it, the x-ray tells me this. As much as it's never pleasant for me to tell my patients this, here's what the MRI is showing. I'd like to schedule you for your first treatment a week from tomorrow. And suddenly then we are thrust into a consideration of dealing with an illness that we wish had never come our way. That can happen to you and me just as surely as it could happen to any person that's a child of the devil. Hard times. Times that bring tears. Times that bring crying. And times that bring emotional distraught. It can happen. As you and I think about the hard times... There are any number of ways that they can come about, isn't it? It might be health-related matters. It might be issues at work. You and I can also get the sentence, the company's downsizing, I'm going to have to let you go. How am I going to feed my wife and children? How am I going to pay my bills? Suddenly a Christian can find himself or herself in that kind of situation just like anybody else. May I suggest... Hard times came to the king in this case, Hezekiah, the most powerful man in the empire, at least powerful in terms of civil government. No wonder it's times like that that you and I should, just like he did, rely on some promises of God and realize that God has stated, stated very carefully, hasn't he, in relation to temptation. God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you're able but will with the temptation also provide a way of escape that ye may be able to bear it, to quote the language of 1 Corinthians 10, 13. And so we know that whatever comes our way, it will not be of such character that it ultimately demands our sinfulness or demands us to fall away from faith. There is a thoroughfare by which it can be dealt with and still glorify the God that made us and allow us to continue to be a good influence to others about us. It may well be in light of that that look at those verses. Hebrews 13 verses 5 and 6 continues to speak with such power, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. May I ask that are you and I always confident? Do we feel His presence with us even when we do get news that's not good, news that at least isn't pleasant? I would hope that maybe our discussion could center on the faithfulness. Be thou faithful until death, and I will give thee a crown of life, to borrow the wording of Revelation 2.10. Didn't James remind us in James 1 verse 12, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Even if we were to get bad news, I'm not in any way suggesting it would be fun. But could we at least be prepared 
with a faithfulness and fortitude of strength in the Lord that we would at least be able to handle it and to deal with it. As we look at the example of Hezekiah, his example leads us to the next portion, the next aspect as well. Look at his prayer. This news that Hezekiah received, what was the first thing he did? We're told he turned his face to the wall and proceeded to pray. He didn't go find the priest. He didn't pursue and find where the high priest might at that time be located. He sought the Lord immediately. I'm sure that the vast majority of those before whom I, whom I stand would be of that same disposition. We know our trust would take us in that direction. Look again at the prayer that, that Hezekiah uttered. Remember now, verse number 3 says, Remember now, O Lord, I beseech Thee. We hear in that a tender plea and supplication, God, hear my prayer. How I have walked before Thee in truth and with a perfect heart. God, I have tried to serve You. I am not by any means claiming I've been perfect by my own volition. I'm not by any means claiming I've done everything that I could have done. But I have sought with a perfect heart in truth to pursue that which was thy will. And the verse goes on to say, I've done that which is good in thy sight. Now we remember that's the verbatim statement back of verse chapter 17 and 18 of 2 Kings. Hezekiah wasn't saying anything that God hadn't affirmed in his word previously. Then he says, Hezekiah wept sore. There isn't anything wrong with a Christian crying. There are those who perhaps think that our internal fortitude and our strength should be such that we cannot be broken to tears. But we find that here was Hezekiah. There are other times in the New Testament that the servants of God were brought to tears, emotionally moved by the carelessness of others, or in fact the sinfulness that was descriptive of the ways of, of people. Sometimes some of the most touching things can be when a Christian brother or sister can share on a crying shoulder the, the difficulties of others. Aren't we commanded to weep with those that weep? And to rejoice with those that rejoice, Romans 12, 15. Surely in light of Hezekiah's tears, we can notice at the very bottom of that statement, God heard that prayer. Isn't that a lovely statement? God, in fact, not many minutes later had Isaiah say to him, I've heard thy prayer. You and I know for sure, for God has promised to hear the prayers of His faithful children. How often does the Word of God remind us of that truth? When you and I pray, it's not as if the ceiling is stopping the effectiveness, the tra travel, if you please, of those utterances. We can rest assured as the people of God that we do have concourse. We have a direct line, if you please, far better than Verizon or AT&T could ever offer. We have the line to the almighty, awesome God of this universe. And He has promised to hear the prayers of His children. That is as, a, as magnificent as it sounds, isn't it? I would ask you to think about just a few passages and just a very few. Perhaps we should begin in Psalm 34, 15, when in the days of old the eyes of the Lord are in every place, the ears of the Lord are open to the prayers of His children. You'll notice that that's quoted almost verbatim in 1 Peter 3, 12. 
where there we hear that inspired apostle Peter say it like this, that the eyes of the Lord and the ears of the Lord are open to the prayers of the righteous, to those then that are His children. What a great difference there is to those that are not. God promises to be open to hear, and you'll notice the effectiveness of this prayer of, of Hezekiah. God heard that prayer and immediately responded by lengthening his life by 15 years. 15 years. That sentence that had initially been given, Set thine house in order, for thou shalt die and not live. 15 additional years added to his life. No wonder as you notice one final passage, and it's the one likely we immediately think of, that text in James 5.16. The first part of that verse is not the one of primary interest for the moment, but it's the latter statement. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. That's a direct statement of the effectiveness of prayer, isn't it? No wonder then the questions can immediately lead us to ask of ourselves matters touching some of these. You and I are admonished to pray for kings and for all that are in authority. 1 Timothy 2 verses 1 and 2. Do you and I believe that the affairs of nations can be impacted by our prayers? The scriptures would indicate that such is the case. Do you and I believe that the impressions in the lives of others, of communities and even far-reaching matters in distant nations could be impacted by the prayers you and I utter and offer? We should believe it. For God, if He hears the prayers of His children, and if His ears are open unto that which they proclaim, then as long as they pray, God, Thy will be done and not my own, to borrow the words of Matthew 6, verses 9 and 10, as well as Matthew 26, verses 39 and 40, we know that God would have an exciting character toward prayers like that. And as long as it is His will, He can impact nations. And you and I can be a part of moving Him to do the same. Isn't it amazing to then think about the power of prayer? The book of Revelation highlights that in a number of ways, not the least of which is, of course, chapters 5 and 8 in which in that very book your prayers and mine are described as incense arising from earth and circling the very throne of God. Your prayers and mine reverberating, if you will, in the halls of heaven. That really is fantastic, isn't it? No wonder we're admonished then to be people of prayer. How often do you and I turn to prayer? Do we allow ourselves to slip, slip from it or slide by it? Daniel prayed three times a day. Daniel chapter 6, verses 9 and following tells us. The psalmist prayed seven times a day in Psalm 119, verses 161 to 163. Can you and I at least find a few moments then to approach the God of heaven? Not just when we've received bad news, but when we just want to thank Him that things are going fine. For a family that is good and faithful, that things are as well with us as they appear to be. No wonder then some of those final comments might lead us to ask this question. How did Hezekiah use the extra 15 years that he had? All impressions of Scripture indicate maybe not in the most effective ways. I say that with a bit of caution. It's not as if we have a great deal of information, but here are some things we do know. 
Think about the extra 15 years that Hezekiah lived. Remember, the sentence of death came in the year, as we've noted earlier, the 15th year of his reign. That would have been about the year 612 B.C. You'll notice in light of that kind of statement, or rather 712 B.C., my apology, as you think about that year, what happened between then and 698 B.C.? Well, the one thing we know is Hezekiah bore another son. We don't know how many children he had ultimately, but at least one of them was this one. He would be the man that would in fact come to the throne after Hezekiah died. And if we think Hezekiah's dad was bad, one would have to argue that his son was even worse. I think it's safe to say that the son of Hezekiah, a man named Manasseh, was the worst king that Judah ever had. I again say that with very little fear of reprisal. And yet notice he was born and so he had opportunity to be influenced by the very man Hezekiah. It seems as though as good as Hezekiah was, Manasseh was just that bad. In fact, it seems that upon his becoming king, he set about to undo all the things his dad had put in place. It would seem whatever influence for good Hezekiah had had, it surely never reached to, to his son Manasseh. And not only that, Manasseh's son was just about as bad as Manasseh was. It was going to be a number of generations before another good king would ever arise, and thankfully that would be Josiah. Maybe in light of that I could ask, if you and I were given 15 additional years, how would we use it? I would hope that we would have an in, a mentality and a strong desire to use it in a way that unlike maybe we would have done before. Probably we'd be tempted to use it just like we'd used the previous time that we had had. I would hope that you and I could be motivated then. If God were to give us additional time, might we use it in such a powerfully effective and influential way for good? Maybe as you come to the bottom of that slide, why don't we then consider in the final element of the lesson tonight the great working of God on this occasion. I'm sure we've contemplated it as the lesson has gone on because we mentioned it earlier, but it wouldn't be a bad idea to at least reflect for ever so briefly upon it again. You'll notice that Hezekiah asked for a sign. It's true that there are times in Scripture when it is not a commended thing to ask for a sign. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus resoundingly denounced those of His day when they asked for a sign. But we might remember there was something very different about that situation. Jesus had already been among them. He would already worked miracles and He plainly said, No other sign will be given other than those you've seen besides the sign of Jonah. As the Lord then was active and alive among them, that's slightly distinct from this one. When Hezekiah asked for a sign, God allowed that sign to be developed to turn back the sundial of Ahaz 10 degrees. A lengthening of the day, a literal miracle was performed, setting aside the laws of physics and astronomy as the clock was turned back, if you please, 40 minutes. That kind of thing does lead us to see, doesn't it, the great working of our God and that which He resoundingly controls in His universe. But as we close this lesson with those statements at the top, we shouldn't expect God to always work a miracle just because we ask it. We shouldn't expect Him, in fact, to set aside the laws of gravity and physics and chemistry and otherwise. 
our faith is such that today we live in a time beyond that age of miracles. God can, of course, still overrule His creation. But when you and I petition Him, we have been given something far grander than Hezekiah ever had. Jesus the Christ has come. The gospel is now ours. And all the evidences that set forth the greatness and the perfectness of it can never, in fact, be set aside. In light of those evidences, as you and I think about the working of God, He still can work in the lives of you and me, the lives of men and women, to bring other individuals to Him because this message is that great power that can blast sin out of the lives of people. Romans 1 verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That's a power even grander than the turning back of the sundial of Ahaz, the removal of sin from the lives of individuals. No wonder that final comment then certainly would be an impression of the true greatness of the Word of God. And in conclusion to the lesson this evening, We've looked at this episode in the life of Hezekiah. We have, among other things, noticed the person that he was, his own individual man, and for that he was commended. We've noticed also the hard times he faced, the sentence of terminal illness, but we saw his reaction in that he prayed unto God and God heard the prayer and lengthened his life. And finally, we used all of that as an encouragement to you and to me to appreciate the working of God indeed. This very evening as we each ask ourselves personally, what about my standing and yours with the God of heaven? It may be you and I haven't received the bad news Hezekiah did, but it's also true we don't know when our life will end. And it's also true we know not what tomorrow may bring. You and I, in fact, from that proverbial scene, might well be departed this life in the realms of Hades by this time tomorrow. Where would you find yourself? Would it be a happy transition for you and me? Or does there need to be some changes in the here and now? If this very night you find yourself separated from God, though once a faithful Christian you no longer are, why remain in that state? You notice that God in fact lengthened Hezekiah's life and God would forgive your sins as well. If we could pray with you and for you, we would truly be honored to do it. If you have never yet, though, obeyed the sweet commandments initially to become a member of the body of Christ, why not tonight? You see, the prayers that you've uttered to this point are not able to be heard by God. You need to be His faithful child. And then all the promises that come with faithfulness will be yours to enjoy. And among them will be the avenue of prayer. Tonight, if you need to respond to, in that way to the gospel's invitation... You need to believe with all of your heart that Jesus indeed is the Son of God, to repent of your sins, confess His name as the only begotten Son of God, and be baptized. Once you rise from that watery grave of baptism, a new life is yours. God created it in that new birth we discussed this morning in John 3, verses 1 to 5. If tonight we could be of any assistance or help to you, may we use some elements of the life of Hezekiah to prompt us to faithful service to deal with hard difficulties. And if right now we could be of help to you, why not come even now while together we stand and while we sing?